heavenly choir. And we thank the Lord for that. James chapter number 2. James chapter number 2. This, I realize, is one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture. And it has been a challenge, and it's been a blessing, and it has been work (laughs) this week to work through this passage. I've taught from this passage. I've preached from this passage before, but every time... I wade into the deep waters of James 2. I feel like I'm going waist deep, shoulder deep, and up to my nose in the glorious truths of this passage. I realize that there are scholars throughout history who have debated this passage. But those who truly hold to the true and the eternally true gospel of Jesus Christ will land on the place that James 2 is complementing and supplementing what Paul teaches in Romans 3, 4, and 5. These are not contradictory passages. These are not passages that, though the scholars, the non-believing scholars, the non-orthodox, the unorthodox, they will try to point to Romans 3, 4, and 5, and to James 2 and say these are contradictions. They are not. They are supplementary. They are complementary. How do we then reconcile Romans 5.1 or Romans 3.20 with this passage? Well, we know that the Bible clearly teaches salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus nothing minus nothing. Romans 5.1 teaches clearly Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3 and verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. As we looked at last week in Titus 3 verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy... He saved us. So this word justification, it means to be declared righteous. It is a judicial term. The judge declares someone to be innocent, to be righteous. It is God's declaration as we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repentance of our sins and we are placed in Christ. God then can declare us having been placed in Christ through repentance and faith, we can be declared righteous. God's, excuse me, Christ's righteousness is imputed, credited to our account. So there can be this declaration by God of innocence, being declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. So though no one is justified by faith, excuse me, though one is justified by faith in Christ We're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. God sees the heart. So in God's eyes, the declaration is upon our repentance and faith in Christ that one is righteous, having been placed in Christ in what is scripturally known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where we are immersed in Christ upon our salvation, turning from our sin and turning to Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. Upon that salvation, God declares us righteous. Well, God sees that. 
God knows that. He sees the heart. We don't see the heart. So though one is justified by faith in the eyes of God, he is justified by works in the eyes of man. Man can't see the heart. God does. So then there has to be evidence that man sees. I know we live in a culture of no judging, just Jesus. I know we live in an age of tolerance and all of that nonsense. The Bible is clear about the right kind of judging, not a hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of others where we have a big two-by-four beam in our eye and we're trying to cast out and condemn the splinter in someone else's eye. Obviously, there is condemnation of hypocritical, self-righteous judgment. But all throughout Scripture, there is a call for discernment, for righteous judgment. So in the eyes of man... We are justified by works, though in the eyes of God, we are justified by faith. And that's what we have to understand as we look at James 2 and compare it to Romans 3, 4, and 5. So James further elaborates on the hard evidence that verifies or contradicts one's verbal testimony. If faith is real, if our faith is real, it responds to a brother or sister in need with action that helps meet that need, even if it means risking one's life. So James is dealing with the people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. And I've said it before, and I'll probably get my tongue tied, but our talk talks and our walk talks but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. James says, I want to see. Man is looking and inspecting. And for a truly born-again Christian, there will be fruit, there will be evidence. And that's what James is dealing with. So he says in James 2, verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? He asks the question, what doth it profit? What good is our faith if we just have all the lingo? We talk all the talk. We know the vocabulary, but there's no reality in our life, no fruit, no evidence of that. Ephesians 2 and verse number 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The good works come as a result of our salvation. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We know from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then, comes verse 10 that we just read. So those who have been justified by faith will demonstrate in faith, will demonstrate their faith, excuse me, in service, in ministry to others. There will be a fruitfulness of life, a spiritual fruitfulness that is evident to others of a new birth in Christ Jesus, of being a new creation, of having been born again, we will look like a member of the family of God. 
you put my children together and they will look like their dad and their mom. Now, hopefully they look more like their mom than they look like their dad because she is much, much prettier than I am. She's very beautiful. Thank you. But there's a resemblance. They're Floyds. They look like Floyds. There's a resemblance of their mom and dad. There should be a Christ-likeness about us. There should be a resemblance. We look and act and talk, behave like a Christian should. James is burdened about this. The hearing, the being, and the doing. And I, again, I cannot help but wonder if James hasn't gotten kind of tired of the superficial, shallow Christianity that he is burdened for, that the people can talk the talk if they had the cars that we have today, they'd have the bumper sticker on the back, but there's nothing about their life that shows any real, true evidence of spiritual fruit, of good works that come as a result of having been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. See, our faith, our faith puts on work boots. Our faith puts on hiking boots. Our faith puts on running shoes. In Ephesians 6, our faith wears the shoes of the gospel in evangelism. But John 13 says that our faith sometimes holds a towel and stoops down and washes the feet of others in humility and service like Jesus did. He's already mentioned, he's already mentioned at the end of chapter 1 that our religion, the practice of our faith, is in vain if we don't bridle the tongue, if we don't serve and give without expecting anything in return, and if we don't keep ourselves unspotted from the world. He's already given those three at the end of chapter 1. He dealt with those. Our religion, our practice of our faith is in vain if we are not bridling our tongue. Oh, we have all the right things to say in front of the right people, but then in the workplace or somewhere around the house, all that vulgarity and that lying and the deception and all that corruption comes out of our mouth. James is going to deal with that in the next chapter. He says our faith is in vain. Our religion is in vain. The practice of our faith is in vain. We're betraying our relationship with God if we don't bridle our tongue, if we don't serve and give in such a way that we don't expect anything in return. Selfless service. Not to be seen of men, not to be man-pleasers, but giving of ourselves in service wholeheartedly to the Lord. And then he says again that we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. One of the evidences of our faith is that we are not worldly-minded. Our values and our priorities are not by the world's priorities and by the world's standards. We're unspotted. We're not stained by the world. We're not perfect, but the lifestyle that we live, our behavior, our words, our thoughts, our actions are patterned after the word of God. We're pursuing holiness, and it's evident in our life, not worldliness, not the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So in keeping with this knowing and being and doing, James emphasizes the outward expression of our faith but not in hypocritical, pharisaical, or legalistic ways. 
but in genuine response to the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. There is evidence of our saving faith by the way that we live that out in the way we talk, the way we act, in the Christ-likeness. This isn't virtue signaling. This isn't merely putting a bumper sticker on the back of our car or wearing a t-shirt, creating a verse image, or posting a good Christian quote on our social media. Though we may do some of those things, and they're not necessarily wrong in and of themselves to do, but our faith is more than that. It's more than just a bumper sticker, a t-shirt, virtue signaling, creating a verse image, some of those other outward expressions. No, our faith is expressed, is lived out in far more ways than that. It is authentic, holy living from the inside out that reveals itself in the love of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians chapter number 5, in the healthy relationships of Colossians 3 and 4 and Ephesians 5 and 6. It's the virtues of 2 Peter 1 that have been added to our faith. That is what should be the fruits, the byproduct, the evidence of our faith, of being born again, of being truly a child of God. None of, the, none of us live these out perfectly, but there should be clear evidence of this kind of love for others in word and in deed, and especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So James now is going to give us four illustrations. Two are an expression of false faith, and two are expressions of valid faith. It's going to give us four illustrations in this passage here. Let's look at verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. He is saying, if one says he is compassionate, oh, I'm a compassionate person, I'm a generous person, I'm a giving person, I'm a loving person. They brag, they talk, they have all the lingo, they say all the nice things, but they don't give ever to the needy. They aren't demonstrating a pattern of generosity, of giving, of compassion. Are they really a compassionate person? Just because they say it? But when you really look at the pattern of their life, when you really look at the way they live, they're selfish, they're self-serving, they're, they're, they're dropping a, a penny and a quarter into the offering plate and letting it jingle jangle so everybody knows that they're giving. But they give very little, they're not supporting the work of the Lord and furthering the kingdom monetarily. There's brothers and sisters who have need and they have the means by which to help. This, this isn't some sort of social program that James is teaching. It's just he's giving a simple illustration. If a brother or sister be naked, destitute of daily food, they don't have the basic necessities of life, and we don't do anything to help them, then are we really compassionate? 
we're really caring, even though we say that we are? Again, this passage isn't advocating for a social gospel that prioritizes material needs over spiritual needs. Nor is this advocating for government programs that really do more to score political points than actually lift people out of poverty long term. No, James is illustrating how a genuinely caring and compassionate person is known for his or her generosity. As a matter of fact, I wonder if he's even alluding, I know it would be later that John writes 1 John 2, but it's the same principle, because we're talking about the same God, we're talking about God's word, which is unified as the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. And in 1 John chapter number 2, we see this love of the brethren as an evidence of one's salvation. 1 John 2 and verse number 9. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. And walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. See, James, as well as John, are dealing with this evidence of our being born again in our love for the brethren, in our giving, in our serving others. Not a narcissistic, type of attitude that we see so prevalent in the world today. This is completely antithetical to the way the culture teaches. It's in our culture, everything is about me, everything's about self, everything is about I, and I can even determine my own truth, individual self-expression, expressive individualism. It is a it, it, is, it is so ingrained in our culture. It is devastating our culture. We are to live with love for the brethren. We're to live with love for others as defined by the Bible, the biblical definition of love, of giving of oneself and of loving according to the truth. That may mean speaking the truth in love. As we talked about last week, it deals with this idea of mercy that we looked at in the previous passage last week, of being a merciful person, but that mercy comes according to the truth, according to the standard of righteousness that God has set. This whole view of love that is so distorted in our culture today is not the kind of love that the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching a love according to the truth, wanting what is God's best, wanting the truth to be lived out in people's lives. It's a sacrificial love. It is a serving love, but it is a love according to the truth. So then James, in verse 18, after he gives us his first illustration, he, in verse 18, has kind of a, a parenthesis. I don't know what the exact literary device term would be, uh, maybe allusion but it's an instance where the author James kind of steps out as a third person and acts as an interviewer of an unknown person. Some commentators even believe that James may be referring specifically to someone. 
who has talked like this. But verse 18, yea, it's kind of like James steps back and he says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. It's as if James is saying, yea, a man may say, thou, you, you have faith. I have works. Okay, so there's this kind of this argument. You have faith. I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. So James, in a sense, is saying you, you say you have faith, then show me that faith. Where is it? Is it visible? God knows the heart. You claim to have it. But is, is there a big sign, neon sign, above someone's head saying, this person has faith? Or like those t-shirts at the amusement park, I'm with, <laughs> you know, this person has faith, or I have faith. Is that, he's saying, you don't have any, you may have the bumper sticker, you may talk it, you may have posted it on your social media. I know we're talking in Bible times, that wasn't available. But he's saying, you have all those things, you claim to have faith. And James says, okay, then show me, show me thy faith without thy works. Is it visible? You can't show me visibly the faith. God knows your heart. He says, then I will show thee my faith by my works. In a sense, James is saying, go ahead, evaluate my life. Go ahead and look. Go ahead and see. Is there an evidence so he is saying to this unknown person that he wants to see evidence of his faith without works, but he can't produce it. He can't see this faith is invisible. It is invisible until he puts that faith into righteous, godly action and attitudes. So James is saying to this unknown person, I will show you my faith by my works. So illustration number one. Now, let's look at illustration number two. Verse number 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Interesting now. The second illustration is the demons. The devils. The demons admit. What do they admit to? Verse number 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. But what does he say? The devils also believe and tremble. You ever been around somebody who says, oh, I believe in God? Yeah, I, I, I have a relationship with God. But don't the devils admit that there is one God? This is hearkening back to Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord speaking to the deity of Christ, speaking to the sonship of Christ, speaking to who he is, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The demons even recognize that much. Matthew 8, 29 and 30. The demons refer to Jesus as the Son of God. This is in the passage, I believe, where the demons are cast into the swine. And the swine run off the cliff. And there's reference to the demons speaking and saying that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And they even mention, why are you dealing with us before the time? What does that speak of? The demons even know there's a judgment day coming. They know that there's an end. You, you, you ever met the bully? You ever met or you ever seen or know a fighter who know they're going to lose? But they're going to fight to the very end. They're going to inflict as much wounds and casualties. I, I, I sense the demons in a little bit are, are like that. They recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. They even recognize their end. But they're going to fight to the very end. They hate God. They hate his word. They will not submit to the authority of Christ, to God. They do not accept that truth, though they know it is true. We continue, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 5 and verse 7. There's a reference to the demons referring to Jesus as son of the most high God. Luke 4 and verse 41. They knew him to be the Christ. Acts 19 and verse 16. The demon recognized Jesus. So when someone says, oh yeah, I believe in God. I have a relationship with God. Really? What do you mean by relationship? Just because you believe in God, that doesn't make you really any better than the demons. The demons even recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. They even recognize that there is a judgment day coming. But they don't accept the truth. They admit to something they refuse to accept, to submit to, to obey. They will even with their words speak what is true, but they don't accept it. They don't obey it. They will not submit to that truth. This is a powerful illustration James is using. This really cuts to our hearts, doesn't it? Forces us to examine ourselves. The words of the demons mean absolutely nothing because there is no genuine saving faith. There's no heart of submission. No works of righteousness, no fruit of the Spirit, no virtues. The comparison, then, having used these two illustrations, the comparison, then, is really not between faith and works, but between true faith and unbelief. Dead faith. Verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. You say that you care about those who are destitute, naked, without food, without clothing. You say you're a compassionate person, but you don't give. You're not a caring, really compassionate worker. You're a compassionate talker. You virtue signal, but there's nothing really about your life that is giving, that is serving, that is compassionate, that is caring. The demons, devils themselves, say... He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. They know their judgment is coming. They referred to Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. They knew him to be the Christ. Yet there's no submission, no obedience. Nothing. Their faith is worthless, vain, empty, of no value. They are condemned to an eternal hell in a lake of fire. Powerful illustrations that James uses. Two illustrations of false faith. It's, un, it's important for us to understand that spiritual works are the evidence of our faith, not the energizer of our faith, as one commentator said. Spiritual works 
are the evidence, Ephesians 2.10, the evidence of our faith, not the energizer of our faith. We don't do good works to earn heaven, to earn favor with God, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Dead faith. Two illustrations. Now he goes to a third illustration. This is an evidence of valid faith. Verse 21, Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Genesis 22 gives the account of Abraham's obedience. Despite it being against everything that he thought he knew and understood about God up to that point. Sometimes God calls us to do the hard thing, doesn't he? Sometimes he calls us to do the seemingly impossible thing. But Abraham demonstrated his faith in being willing to sacrifice his only son. I have three boys, and it is difficult for me to even consider sacrificing one of my own sons. That is just, I cannot wrap my mind around that. It hurts my heart to think about that. I have not, I wasn't able to watch the film, Christian film, I believe it's called Tortured for Christ. I think there's a book and there's a film. I only got about 15 maybe minutes into that film and I had to turn it off. I couldn't handle it as the communists tortured, savagely tortured Hamas-style tortured the son in front of his father because the father would not deny Christ. I had to turn it off. I couldn't handle it. It was too hard emotionally. But it spoke to Abraham's faith. Genesis 22 gives the account, but Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, indicates that Abraham exercised faith believing that God had the ability to raise up Isaac from the dead if he chose to do so. That's faith. I'm going to do the hard thing. I'm going to do the impossible thing, but I'm going to trust God to work it out according to his will, according to his plan. Even if it meant sacrificing his own son, knowing God was able to raise him from the dead, that this was the heir of the promise. Incredible faith. James 2, verse 21, indicates that this was the act of faith and obedience that justified Abraham. Verse 21, was not Abraham our faith justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? So James 2, 21 indicates this was the act of faith, the expression of his faith and obedience that justified Abraham. But this justification is in the sight of man. In the sight of man. James actually quotes Genesis 15 in verse number 6, in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled. I love the unity of scripture. God's word is inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative. And there's a unity to scripture. Paul quotes Genesis 15:6. James quotes Genesis 15:6. These are truths revealed by God. 
Inspired by God, James quotes Genesis 15.6 in verse 23. The phrase friend of God is the result then of Abraham's faith. He can, even, he can be called a friend of God. That's an incredible statement. That's referenced in Isaiah 41.8, 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7. But James quotes Genesis 15.6. Paul quotes Genesis 15.6 in Romans 4 in verse number 3. The same quotes that Paul uses in Romans 4.3, James uses here. And in Romans 4.3, Paul quotes it to teach justification by faith alone in Christ alone. God's perspective of Abraham was what? His heart. The difference is the viewpoints. There is no contradiction of teaching. Again, this is complementary. This is supplementary. From man's perspective, from man's perspective, the evidence of Abraham's faith was in his act of obedience. That act of faith had to have come from faith in God and in God alone, the one true and living God. So from man's perspective, the evidence of Abraham's faith was the obedience in taking Isaac to be sacrificed. But God saw Abraham's heart and knew his belief was authentic and directed toward him and him alone. His faith was not in himself, it was not in his good works or in his heritage. As John 1 and verse 13 reminds us, John 1 and verse 13, I'm going to turn back to this passage. Because sometimes this is what people lean on. Abraham was not leaning on his heritage, his good works. Abraham could have said, oh, I've been called by God. Nobody else in the land of Ur got called by God like I did. I'm going to do these good things in order to earn my way to heaven. No, Abraham, mm-mm. no. God saw his heart. He believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. God saw his heart. But man's perspective was he did the work of obedience and taking his son. And Abraham was, is an example of John 1 and verse 13, which were born not of blood, not by heritage, not because you grew up in a certain family in a certain part of the country and you've always been Christians. Everybody, grandma, grandpa, aunt and uncle. No, not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Trying to will our way, doing enough good things, sacraments, and all of the religiosity, and all of the outward performances. I'll earn, I'll will my way into heaven. Nope, not the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Sincerity, right? That's what a lot of people think. Well, if I'm just sincere enough, it doesn't really matter how I practice, there's all these different paths to God. We're all going to get there on our own pathway as long as we're sincere. No, John 1, verse 13, not of the will of man, but of God. Abraham believed God. And then it resulted in this great act of faith because the object of his faith was God. Man can't see the heart, but God can. The perspectives, the act of obedience man saw, But God saw the heart. Don't get me wrong when I say this. I know we don't do come forward invitations. There's a reason for that. Okay? I grew up in a church where, and I love my pastor that I grew up with. 
love him to death, mentored me in the ministry, understand why he did what he did. But we would sit through 20 minutes of invitation until just about every person could come out of the pew. And I call it milking the crowd, getting every last drop of people down the aisle. And sadly, I would see many of those same people two weeks later come back down. Nothing ever changed. My point is this, not to criticize those who do come forward invitations. That's not my point. Please don't take that wrong way. But the decision is in the heart before anyone ever walked the aisle. The aisle walking doesn't save anybody. The four points of home and a prayer doesn't save anybody. It's the heart that man believes. And with the mouth and confession is made unto salvation. James is burdened about that. The demons, false faith. A person who says he's compassionate and doesn't do anything about it. Doesn't really live it. False faith. Abraham, real faith. Valid faith. He believed God. It was counted in for righteousness. And he acted upon that faith. Doing what was seemingly impossible that made no sense, humanly speaking. That's how we have to live. We have to live right now in the 21st century in a way that is totally, completely contrary to everything that this hell-bound world is saying to live. We have to live completely contrary to that, even down to the very male and female genders, sex. And we don't separate gender from sex. We continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, though the world is becoming more and more ecumenical and everybody can kind of get there their own way and you believe in your truth, I believe in my truth. We live by faith. We walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. One more illustration, number four, and then we're done. Rahab, verses 25 and 26, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Rahab, Jericho, the spies, they went in. Of all places, a harlot's house. But what was Rahab doing? She was demonstrating her faith in the one true and living God, the Lord God, Jehovah, the God of Israel. She was not commended for her lying when the leaders of Jericho came and said, where are the spies? And she lied. There's never in Scripture any commendation of her lying. In Hebrews 11, it's her faith. Here, it's her faith demonstrated by the fact that she hid the spies, that she was willing to put her life on the line. She was willing to take in those spies. She was showing identity with the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Lord God, Jehovah. Her object, the object of her faith was the one true and living God, the God of Israel. And she acted upon that faith. Abraham and Rahab came to Christ the same way, by faith alone, looking ahead to the cross of Christ, believing in the Lord God, Jehovah, the God of Israel, the Messiah to come. We look back at the cross, the Messiah who has come and will come again. But it's saving faith. It's not works. 
Rahab was not saved by any works. She demonstrated the perspective. How did she? We wouldn't have known. Those spies wouldn't have known the heart. They couldn't see her heart, but they sure could see the evidence of the belief in her heart, couldn't they? They were hiding in that place. They may have heard the knocking on the door. They may have heard the voices. Wondering, is this the end? Is this it? Are we going to die now? Here, Rahab, yes, it was a lie, but the fact is that in her heart, she believed God. And she was acting out in her faith. She hid the spies. And then he gives, if we want to call it a fifth illustration, but it's just a simple illustration at verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. The spirit of man, the spirit there, has to do with the breath of life. So if the spirit of man, if the breath of life is not in a person, then they're dead. That's an obvious symptom, an obvious characteristic of someone who's dead. There's no breath. There's no breath of life. That's what James is saying. A person who is without faith is not going to demonstrate the works of God, the works of righteousness. They're not going to do the good works. There's no breath of life in them. But those who have the breath of life, the breath of God, the saving Spirit of God, who have been saved by faith alone and Christ alone, they are going to evidence that in the way they live, in the works of their life. So as we close, the question is, if you were to be put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's important for us to understand, I, I know that there are religious and moralistic people out there. They give to charity, they're typically pretty good citizens, obey the law for the most part. They may volunteer at different social services and events. They live, a de- they live a decent life. But if one has never repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, then their righteousness is as filthy rags. It's a sobering thought. That the unsaved person, all the good that they do is for naught. Because it's all done to try to earn their way to heaven. Good works are the evidence of our faith. They don't energize our faith, to use that commentator. They may do a lot of good deeds. Ted Turner, founder of CNN, the communist, I mean the, the, the CNN, whatever, the news network. He at least he used to own the Atlanta Braves. Gave millions to the United Nations. What a waste of money. Anyway, but made him get, got a press conference. Look at me. Look at what I gave me, the owner of CNN and the Atlanta Braves. Look at what I did. I gave big money to a good cause. Filthy rags. An unsaved person even doing good deeds. That righteousness is filthy rags. Until one gets saved, all those good deeds are worthless attempts at being good enough to get to heaven. Matthew 7, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord. There will some who will come at the judgment seat and say, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out demons and in thy name done many marvelous works? And what will Jesus say? 
depart from me. I never knew you. You were trying to earn your way to heaven instead of putting faith and trust, confessing your sins and repentance and putting your faith and trust in me as your Savior who died on the cross and rose again. You never trusted me. Your good works are worthless. Paul said in Philippians 3, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He even referred to them as dung, as the rubbish that goes on the trash heap outside of Jerusalem in in Gehenna, in the, the, the fiery trash landfill. Dung. He said, my good works, all the good things. His heritage, his pedigree, his Pharisaism, even his righteous persecution, righteous persecution of Christians. He said, it's all dung. What things were gained to me, I count as loss for Christ. So, genuine saving faith. Genuine saving faith, James reminds us here in this passage, results in fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But the question is, what is the works of your faith? Where is the fruit? And once again, if you were to be put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, Lord. It is a wonderful passage, deep in great spiritual soteriological truths that cuts even to the, the heart, to the joints and marrow of our heart and discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We pray, Lord, if there's someone here who is just masquerading as a Christian, Lord, may today they genuinely turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith and quit depending on their own good works, their own sincerity, and turn to you confessing their sins and looking to you by faith alone and Christ alone for their salvation. Lord, as believers, where's the evidence of our faith? Where's the fruit of the Spirit? Where's the virtues of 2 Peter 1? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Are we laying up treasures in heaven, or is it just wood, hay, and stubble? Lord, I pray that you will help us to be renewed in our obedience and our love and our faithfulness and gratitude and appreciation in the great debt that we owe to you. May we serve you faithfully in obedience, knowing, being, and doing, not just being hearers of the word, but being doers of it. As a result of our faith and our trust in you and you alone, Lord, may the byproduct of that relationship with you be seen in our love for others, in our faithfulness and obedience to your word.